All right, well, let's open our Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 14. We're just going to look at the first 12 verses today, and then we're going to take communion together. But let's go ahead and read the first 12 verses. Notice what it says. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had said to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Therefore he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. And so she, having been prompted by her mother, said, Give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter." And the king was sorry, nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him. He commanded it to be given to her, and so he sent and had John beheaded in prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Then his disciples came and took away the body and buried it and went and told Jesus." Lord, we just thank you uh, for this passage, even though it's a disturbing one. And yet we know that even as John was suffering these things, and certainly the forerunner of Christ, Lord, it was a foreshadowing of what was going to come to Christ himself. And so, Lord, we, we thank you, Lord, for your word and how you instruct us. And pray, Lord, that these things that we read this morning... Lord, that they wouldn't shake us, but rather, Lord, we would continue to be your ambassadors, come what may of our own lives, that we would seek and, and continue to speak of you to any and all who, who might hear. And so, Lord, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. As we read those first 12 verses, um, it's kind of interesting, isn't it, you know, John the Baptist, being six months older than Jesus, he was the forebearer of Christ. And, and we'll look at this briefly, but he fulfilled those prophecies in Isaiah chapter 40. The voice of one come crying in the wilderness, make straight paths the way for the Lord. And, 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 and certainly John was doing that. Certainly John did that. And, and, and since the beginning of time, I, I want you to see this morning that, uh, you know, we, we labeled this morning's message, uh, silencing the voice and I put a question mark there because can God's voice really be silenced? Can God's voice be silenced? The devil has tried uh, since the beginning of time. The enemy of our soul, Satan, has attempted and will continue to try to silence the voice of God. But he cannot ultimately silence God. Why? Because God is all-powerful. God is the one who made all things. Satan is not equal to God the Father. In fact, the Bible says that Satan is a created being. He is an angel, a fallen angel, the most powerful fallen angel. But can he do this? Can, can Satan really silence 
God? Well, we got a problem because the Bible tells us in Hebrews 4 verse 12 that the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Those are the swords that the Romans would handle and it would be sharp on both sides. It would be a small dagger for close uh, combat. But the word of God is living. It's powerful. And it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow. And, and here's the interesting part, and as a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. I like that, don't you? And it's a little bit um, scary to consider that the Word of God is trying us. The Word of God is the searchlight. As we read it, it ought to shine a light on our souls, on our lives, and dispel the darkness, to make obvious the things that are of God and things that are not of God. But what does it tell us in Isaiah 40, verse 8? It says, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God, what? It stands forever. There is nothing that Satan can do to thwart or silence the word of God. And and, and the devil certainly thought that by shutting the mouth of John the Baptist that... Hopefully that would be good enough, but it wasn't good enough, and it will never be good enough. Satan cannot and will not be victorious in silencing the word of God or God's plan of redemption. God's plan of redemption has been going on for since the beginning in the garden until now, and it will continue, and it will happen. Things will happen exactly the way God has told us in advance that they will. There's no one, there's nothing on this earth, nothing spiritually that we can't see that can thwart God's word. You cannot silence God. He will silence you. (laughs) Not any of you who are born again, but for anyone who stands in his way, they're going to have to deal with Almighty God. Yes, the Lamb of God. But when he comes back in his second glorious return to the earth, he's not going to be the meek, mild baby Jesus in the manger. He's not going to be the Lamb who was slain for the foundation. No, he's coming back as a judge and a righteous, victorious captain of our salvation. And he will come back. And the world will be astonished. And that day is approaching. Getting closer and closer every day. But whether it's to silence the word of God from going out or whether it's to silence us collectively, our individual, our witness, the enemy will never stop and neither can we. Do you remember the movie uh, uh, Jurassic Park? Remember the, the velociraptors, those little creatures that were not, not the big ones, but the little ones. And remember, there was a pen surrounding the island, and it was electrified, and it was electronic and electric. Electronic and electric, electric, electri- whatever. You know, you get the point. <laughs> And they were testing the fence, always testing the fence, trying to find somewhere, some part in that fence where there was a vulnerability, maybe a weak spot, and they would attack that one spot. And they kept doing it until they got out, and they did. And that's the enemy of our souls as well. Satan will never stop, folks. And neither should we. And our names, if you're, na- if you're a believer this morning, your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. You have every bit of assurance of your salvation. But is your time as a believer, is it going to be easy? Is it going to be smooth sailing all the time? No. In fact, when I became a Christian, the battle really began. I was a wounded soldier, and I didn't even know it before. I was already dead on the battlefield. 
I was already a casualty in the war until God revived me by his spirit. Do you remember that day when you gave your heart to Christ? All of a sudden, all things became new. I knew that my sins had been forgiven. I knew that I was going to heaven. Hallelujah. <laughs> I'm so excited for that. But remember that? And so these, and the devil will never stop, but neither must we. We must continue to go. And I want to encourage you with this scripture, and you know this very well. It's in 1 John. It says, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you. That's the Spirit of God in you, if you are a believer in Christ. The Spirit of God that's in you is greater than he that is in the world. And I love the King James version of this better than the New King James, because I memorized it in this, in this version, and I love that, that, that phrase, and I'll forever have it on my heart. But Satan, we know, will use whatever means he can to silence or stop you. Just as he thought he was successful in snuffing out the life of John the Baptist through Herod. Yes, through Herod. Satan uses human elements to do his bidding. And he will use whatever he has at his disposal. He will antagonize you. Satan will belittle you. His, his uh, ambassadors... They will belittle you. They'll call you names. They will seek to discourage you, to cancel you, to slander you, to persecute you. And when none of those things keep you from doing what you know you need to do, when, when he cannot stop you or deter you, he will seek to destroy you. Yes, he will seek to destroy you. Peter tells us in his letter, he says, Be sober and be vigilant. This is 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And here's the exhortation, resist him steadfast in the faith. Did you know that's a, a, a phrase for us, believers, steadfast in the faith? I love that. He says, resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. And in John chapter 8, 44, Jesus speaking calls the devil a murderer from the beginning. He murdered John. He was going to next seek to murder Christ. And he thought he was going to be successful until on the third day. Oops. He rose again, defeating death and hell. But what does 1 John tell us in chapter 3, verse 15? That whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And Satan hated Adam and Eve. In the very beginning of the garden, that's why he sought to deceive them and break their fellowship with God, and, and he did that. He broke that fellowship. Sin entered in, and then from Adam until the current time, sin is in the world, and it's, it's passed along from every person. This sin nature, this dead spirit, this rebellion. And it's not until we're born again that that spirit of God, he indwells us and he he suppresses that old nature. But yes, those two natures are within us. But this new nature must have precedence. As believers, we want him to have his way, don't we? Lord, I want you to have your way. Even in my, in my moments where I don't want you to have your way, please have your way and, and, and kill these desires in my life that are at enmity with you. These things that I know about. Give me the strength and the power to resist all those things. 
But just as Satan sought to put John the Baptist to death, he's also going to do the same thing to Jesus. But John the Baptist, he was the voice, as Isaiah tells us, of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. John the Baptist was this forerunner. He was the herald, if you will. He was the town crier for Jesus, preparing the hearts of the people for the Messiah. And he was zealous for truth. He was the one, the town crier, and that's literally what his, his title is. He was a forerunner. What, he was the herald. He would actually, when, people, when kings would come into town, there'd be a, a herald that would go before the king or the magistrate and blow the trumpet. Hear ye, hear ye. This guy with the fancy clothes is about ready to speak. Listen. Of course, Jesus didn't have fancy clothes. But the more John the Baptist, now Baptist was not John's last name, by the way. And I have to differentiate him from John the Apostle. So John the Baptist, it just means that he, was, he baptized. That's why they called him the Baptist. But that's not his first name. And when he fills out an application you know, for, uh, you know, for his driver's license, he's not going to put John first name, Baptist last name. It's, he was just a Baptist. But he, the more he spoke of Christ and the kingdom of heaven, and the more he stood for truth, the greater target he was. And you remember the zeal that he had as he provoked and, and, and really exposed the darkness in the Pharisees and also in all the people. And many people repented and came to him. And he was a target. And by the way, the same is true for you and I. Do you know that the goal of Satan is to silence you? His goal is ultimately to destroy you, if he can. But there are limits to what Satan can do, right? We know this to be true. In the book of Job, in chapter 1, verse 6, it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan was also came among them, and the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered and said, From going to and fro on the earth and walking back and forth on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Well, thank you very much, Lord. <laughs> have you considered my servant Job? He's an exemplary man. I know his heart. I know him. Have you considered him, Satan? And then Satan, uh, um, you know, God says, he's a blameless and upright man who fears God and shuns evil. And Satan answered the Lord and said to him, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions and have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to the face. And the Lord said to Satan, notice this. I want you to see this because even what happened to John and even what happened to Jesus was not some accident. God allows certain things. We don't always understand it. But he allowed John to die a very early ministry. He only served the Lord maybe less than a year. Maybe six months was the, the, the length of his ministry. And God allowed that to happen. And why do I know that? Because of this. And the Lord said to, um, said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. And so Satan left from, his presence, left from the presence of the Lord, and that's exactly what he was able to do. Do you understand? He was able to create havoc in this man's life, but he wasn't able to touch him. 
God put clearly defined boundaries around what Satan was allowed to do. Satan just wanted to come through and just blow everything away and kill everybody and everything. And God says, no. But I will allow you to do up to a certain amount. And that's a little scary to us, isn't it? But don't worry, because God knew Job's heart. Did Job struggle? Yes, he did. If you read the book, you understand. He did struggle. But did God know the end of Job and what God was going to do in his life and how Job preserved his, 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 his righteousness throughout the book? And he did struggle. Even his wife come, came to him at one point and said, just curse God and die. I think they need marriage counseling. Maybe they can come to the marriage conference. Curse God and die, Job. Just get it over with. You know you've done something wrong. I know it. Just curse God and die. And then it tells us in chapter 2 a very similar thing, the very next thing. And there was a day also the sons of man came to present themselves before the Lord. Satan comes among them, and the Lord said to Satan, from where are you come? And Satan answered, I'm going to and fro from the earth, walking back and forth to and fro from it. And the Lord said to Satan, well, have you considered my servant Job? Well, didn't I just mess with that guy? And God says, he's a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil, and still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. And so Satan said, Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, yes. All that a man has, he will give for his own life, but stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. In other words, you can touch his body and the things that he's going to go through, but you cannot take his life. I will not allow you to destroy him. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And and so this difficult set of circumstances that we read about occurred in Job's life, and, um, and God allowed it at the very least, but again, he knew the end of it, and he blessed him twice as much at the end of it all. And Job had an understanding of who God was, unlike ever before. You know, oftentimes we think that when we go through something, like what John the Baptist went through, or, or, or what other people go through, hardships or struggles, we think, you know, uh, that the best way to do that is to not go through any struggles. Just bless me, Lord. Just pay all my bills and, you know, give me ice cream. And ha- I want that house on the, on the lake with a, with a nice Bugatti with the circular parking lot right in front of my door. And he's like, I'm afraid that's just not the way it works. If you really want to understand me, and you really want to get to know me, your life is going to be marked by certain things. And it's true for all of us. I know this from experience. And so do you. But when you go through hardship, it brings you closer to God. And you have a testimony now that cannot be silenced. Because now you can share that with many other people who, have, who are going through it or will go through it. Because now you own it. You own the truth knowing that God has brought you through it. Just like those three lads in the fiery furnace. Jesus was with them in the fire. And God is with you in the fire. And when you come out on the other side of it, boy, you're shining like gold. You feel a little crispy around the edges, but God has increased your faith and given you something that no one can take away from you. You know what it's like to be held by God in the everlasting arms when your life is a shambles and a wreck. And God allowed Herod to capture and ultimately kill John. 
But John's ministry, although short, was effective and powerful. John did not fail in God's calling for his life. And whether your ministry is short or long, it is up to the Lord. Our main thing is that we just need to be faithful to do what God has called us to do and then leave the results in his hands. From all intents and purposes, when you look at John's life, six months, really, approximately, And this is a man whose life and ministry was prophesied hundreds of years in advance. Hundreds of years. Isaiah, 700 years before he was born, was speaking about the role of John. Six months. (laughs) And how effective was that ministry? Incredibly effective. Potent. I love what it says in Revelation, and as Jesus is writing this letter to the church of Smyrna, he says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. That's a verse we don't like to hear, do we, as Christians? Because I don't want to (laughs) die. Well, you may not want to die physically. None of us really look forward to that day, but we should be dying to ourselves at the very least, right? And if the day comes where I have a choice between my life and denying God... Like that young lady in Columbine, remember her? Rachel Scott? Darren Klebo, I don't even like to mention the guy's name because I don't want to give him notoriety, but he put a gun to her head and he said, do you believe in Jesus? He had a rifle. And she said yes. And he shot her. More than once. Killed her. She passed the test. None of us want to take that test. But let's go back and look at verse 1. It says, At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Herod, no doubt, had a guilty conscience and was certainly tormented because of the things that he had done, even causing him seemingly to think irrational thoughts. I mean, this is irrational, what he's thinking. The guy is delusional. He was mentally unstable. It, it, it intimates here in, this, in these first couple of verses that the deed had already been done, and now... He's thinking about it, and he's hearing the reports of Jesus, and he's going, ah, it must be John. I killed him a while back, and I know it's the, it's, he's come back. He's risen from the dead. The guy's bugging out. You can just see his eyeballs like this and all the veins and, you know, losing all form of reality. Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had said to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. So what is the situation that's going on here? Well, earlier in, John, in Jesus' ministry, excuse me, John the Baptist had been arrested because of this confrontation that he had with Herod, and it's recorded for us in a few, cha- in a few passages, but in Luke chapter 3, verse 16, and again, early in Jesus' ministry. And John is now speaking near Bethabara, uh, this place of the ford, this shallow part in the Jordan River where he was baptizing people. And it says that John answered all of them and says, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to lose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, and the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Speaking of believers and unbelievers, and with many other exhortations he preached to the people. Ah, but verse 19. 
But Herod the Tetrarch, being rebuked by him concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for all the evils which Herod had done, also added this above all, that he shut John up into prison. We know that John the Baptist was imprisoned at Herod Antipas's desert fortress uh, in Macurus, and Macurus is on the right side of the, uh, on the east side of the Jordan River, right on the side of uh, the east side of the Dead Sea. And it was, um, and in 2009, between 2009 and 2012, a, a group called the Hungarian Academy of Arts, they conducted surveys and excavations at this area where they believe Mercurius was this desert palace of Herod, and they, they found it, and, and, and there is a map of it, and this is the place where Herod had this drunken birthday party, and it's where Herodias' daughter, her name is Salome. She danced before Herod and where Herod ultimately beheaded John the Baptist. And you won't find the word Macurus in the Bible because it is not there. But the Jewish historian Josephus tells us that this is where John was imprisoned and ultimately beheaded. He said, accordingly, he, John, was sent, a, was sent a prisoner out of Herod's suspicious temper to Macurus, the castle I before mentioned, and was there put to death. And so we find that it was because of his rebuking Herod for marrying his brother Philip's wife. Because remember, when Herod the, Herod the Great died in 4 BC, that was around the time that Jesus was born. When he died, Herod's three sons inherited uh, the jurisdiction around Judah and Jerusalem and all around Israel. There was Philip, and then there was Archelaus, and then there was Antipas. And Antipas is the one here who put John to death. And evidently, Herod Antipas divorced his wife and married his brother's wife, whose name was Herodias. And she also had a daughter named Salome, who was no doubt probably a young teen, maybe in her middle teens, late teens, somewhere at this time. And so he wasn't supposed to marry her. The, the law of God says so. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. If a man takes his brother's wife, it is an unclean thing. He, shall, he has uncovered his brother's nakedness. They shall be childless. So there is the indictment that John the Baptist had leveled against Herod in front of his wife. Shouldn't be his wife, his unlawful wife. And they were not very happy exposing him. John exposed them. Have you ever exposed somebody high and mighty in the community? It usually doesn't end well. They come after you. They cancel you. They ridicule you. Because they got the money and the power. They'll just squash you. So what makes the death of John the Baptist so significant? Why did Matthew include it here in the chapter that we're looking at? Well, it foreshadows and exemplifies Jesus' own rejection and also ultimately Jesus' death. 
That's why Matthew put this event in the account, I believe, because Jesus was rejected by the religious leaders. We, we looked at that over the last couple weeks, how in Matthew 12, verse 24, that Jesus cast out the demon of the man, and now he could speak, and now hear, and they called him, <clears throat> excuse me, He said to him, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub. In other words, Jesus, you're Satan. You're casting out the demons because you, are, you got the spirit of Satan in you. And by doing this, they were rejecting Christ. In Matthew 13, in the very last few chapters, 54 through 57, we saw how Jesus went into his own country, into Nazareth, and they rejected him as well. And Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. And ultimately, the final nail in the coffin of their rejection was in Matthew 21, which we celebrated the anniversary of that on Palm Sunday when Jesus rode in on the donkey. They would ultimately reject him then, and that would be it. The nation of Israel at that time had wholesale rejected him. The kingdom no longer offered to them And now the Lord would turn to the Gentiles. He wouldn't forget about Israel. He would put them on hold. And he would work in the lives of the Gentiles. And I'm a Gentile. And I'm glad. Because it was because of that ministry of the Apostle Paul and Peter and others. All throughout the centuries is the reason we are sitting here today, folks. It started back in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And we are the beneficiaries, the remnant of that initial spark. Every one of us. Isn't that great to know where you came from? To where it all started. It all started with Jesus. It all started with his spirit. He is the one. One author said this, John preceded the Messiah in birth, and he did. He was six months older. And now he precedes, and in mission, John was the herald who went before Christ. And now he precedes Jesus in his own violent death. And think of the psychological part of this. Yes, Jesus came, was God come in human flesh, but what a horrible death to know that your forebearer, your forerunner, had to go through this horrible death. I mean, what worse death could, death could there be but beheading? I mean, when we hear stories about that, it just makes everybody cringe, and then everybody thinks about it a little too much. And if you're a male, you think about it a little longer than that. But John's death, even though it was horrific, was quick. It was quick. It was horrific, but quick. But Jesus' death on the cross, he'd, he'd be suffering on the cross for six hours. And not only just the physical suffering, but the blow that God the Father gave to him that nobody ever took in history. And that was the placing of all of our sin on him once and for all. Once and for all. Every sin that had been done, every sin that could ever be done in, in all of eternity was placed upon his son and he paid the price in totality and he said at the end, it is finished. To tell us that, it's an accounting term, like our mortgage just got paid off. To tell us that, it's paid in full. And Jesus did that for the sin of every single human being. But you have to trust in him. You have to receive him. You have to believe in him, what he did for you, and believe in everything he said. And when you do, welcome to the family of God. The Spirit of God takes up residence. That's what makes you a Christian. 
But John was martyred, and Jesus knew in a few years he would be killed as well. And as the song, there's a song that we sing called Above All. It says, he lived to die. He lived to die. Even John the Baptist, he lived to die. And Jesus lived to die. That was the purpose of his life for you and I. And it didn't shake him. He was in complete control. What, is, what does it tell us in Hebrews 12? That he, that we should look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, for who for the joy that was set before him, knowing that we would be here today, that was the joy, at least part of it, in a small way. Who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He despised the shame and is set down at the right hand of the <laughs> throne of God. I love that, don't you? There's a king in heaven with a resurrected body right now as we speak. His name is Jesus. Back in our text, back in verse 5, it says, And although Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. Herod being a consummate politician, he had no spine, he had no moral convictions. He was manipulated by his wife, Herodias. And Herodias was very well rehearsed at her art of um, manipulation and seduction. And her daughter, no doubt, learned from her mother. Because it says in verse 6, when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. The idea here and the original language here means that she danced a seductive dance. And this was his niece, really. But now that they're married, I guess now he's stepdaughter. I don't know. Either way, the whole thing is twisted. But here's this young girl dancing seductively, sexually, in front of her father, or, you know, Herod, her uncle, really, and all of his guests, all these men, and they're all drinking and partying, and she's dancing, and he's getting a little bit light in the head. Therefore, he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask, incited his lust so much, he's like, whatever you want, up to half the kingdom I'll give to you. You really made a, a profound effect on me and the boys today. A rule of thumb, never make any decisions when you're under the influence of alcohol or when you are going through some kind of intense emotional thing, trauma. Don't make any decisions when you're going through emotional issues. Cool down, wait, and then pray, and then make a decision. But not him. And so she, having been prompted by her mother, what a great mother. Mother, what should I ask? Should I ask for that little house by the lake? with our own servants to give us crumpets and tea? And she's like, no, give me the head of John the Baptist. What a filthy woman. What a horrible woman. And notice, Salome was prompted by her mother, the, the queen of uh, manipulation. She's been manipulating Herod all this time. Herodias had the same spirit about her as Ahab's wife, Jezebel. She's the New Testament Jezebel and Athaliah, who tried to usurp the throne of Judah. Verse 9, and the king was sorry. 
Nevertheless, because of the O's and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. And it tells us in, in Mark's gospel that Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. So there was something about John the Baptist's life. Maybe it was his godly character, whatever it was. I mean, juxtaposed against Herod, it was obvious. Herod was just was like blown away by this guy. He wanted to kill him, but that he loved him. He's like, I want to hear more. But his heart wasn't right still, but there was something about John's life. And you know, that's, that's the life that God wants us to have. For people to look, even those who hate us, to look at you and go, man, I just want to, I want to punch you in the nose, but I just love you, man. There's something about you. I just, I want what you have, but I, man, I just want to, what a crazy thing to happen in a person to want to hurt somebody and yet you're enamored by them <laughs> so we went and, and 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 had john beheaded in prison and his head was brought on the platter given to the girl she brought it to her mother here mom oh great is it the pig with the apple in it no it's john the Baptist's head there then his disciples came and took away the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. Now remember that John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. Remember Elizabeth? That was John the Baptist's mother, and Mary and Elizabeth were cousins. So John and Jesus were cousins. And this man went and had his head sheared off in a dark, damp prison for his cousin because he knew that he was God in the flesh. Can any of us say that about our, our, our family or friends? Oh, you're the Messiah. John knew because John observed throughout time the life of this man, and the Spirit of God revealed it to him. But John the Baptist's voice was not the only one that Satan sought to silence. As we look, in, as we look through history, some of the, just a few examples here. Satan in the Garden of Eden sought to, to silence God's voice by getting Adam and Eve to disobey God. Remember, God had told Adam, he says, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you may not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And so what happened in Genesis chapter 3? Did the serpent come to the man? No, he came to the weaker vessel. And I don't mean weaker in the sense of character or anything like that, but he comes to Eve. He attacks Eve first. He doesn't go to Adam first. He goes to Adam's wife, and he attacks her, and he silences her. He silences the voice of God that God had already spoken to them. Of all the things you can eat, don't eat the fruit of that tree. And what did Satan say? The serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field, uh, Genesis 3, that God had made. And the serpent said to the woman, has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of, every, uh, of any fruit of the tree, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God said you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So what does Satan do in one fell swoop? He silences the word of God and he replaces it with doubt in her heart and she takes the bait. And then Adam takes the bait. It's not the first time that God, that, that Satan, excuse me, has tried to silence someone he tried to silence God's voice. 
What about Cain and Abel? Cain attempted to silence Abel's voice. Remember, these two were twins. They were born, it says, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. This is Genesis 4, verse 1. And she says, I have acquired a man from the Lord. And she bore again, this time, his brother Abel. So evidently, they were twins. They came out at the same time. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground of the Lord. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock, notice, and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. Cain was very angry as a result. Why did I brought you this great fruit basket with all the vegetables? Everything is there, the flowers, the daisies, the, you know, the, um, the sunflower. Everything is there, God. It looks so beautiful. And yet you, you take this bloody lamb that he sla- slaughtered. What gives? You can eat this. And you can look at how beautiful it is. This is a bloody mess. And God had respect to that because his parents taught him well. From the garden, he provided skins for them. An animal was sacrificed to cover them, to cover their sin, just like the blood of Christ covers us, the Lamb of God, Jesus being slain for us. And so the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? And if you do well, you will not be will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now Cain talked with his brother Abel and it came to pass that when they were in the field that Cain rose up and killed Abel his brother. And then the Lord said to Cain, "Where is Abel your brother?" Do you think God knew where he was? Of course he did. He's drawing Abel out. He's reeling him in. He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Can you imagine speaking to God like that? Don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And God said to him, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. The voice of your brother In Hebrews 11, verse 4, it it fills in the blank for us a little bit. It says in the hall of faith there in Hebrews 11, By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and and through it he being dead still speaks. Do you see that? Can you silence God? They tried to silence John the Baptist. Cain tried to silence Abel, and God says his blood is still crying out. God testifying, and and through it, he being dead still speaks. It's been said that you can't keep a good man down, or you can't kill, or you can kill the workman, but you can't kill the message. You can kill the workman, but the message, the work will go on. And what about Saul? He, Saul, the, uh, in David's time, King Saul, he tried to silence and, and, and cancel David from the very beginning. 
And while David had been anointed king, he was on the run for at least seven years of his life while Saul was trying to kill him, and he came close so many times. And do you understand that him trying to silence David, by killing David, he would do a number of things all at once. He would get rid of his adversary, the one who would ultimately be on the throne, but he would also refute All the prophecies, many of them in the Old Testament. Do you realize how close he was? In Genesis 49, Jacob prophesying over Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from before between his feet until Shiloh, a reference of Christ, until he comes. And what about the prophecy that God gave to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 12, the Davidic covenant, when he spoke to him concerning the seed that would come from David's own body that would establish the throne in Judah in Jerusalem and the kingdom forever and ever and ever that had to come through David. And even through Isaiah, what did Isaiah say? There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. That was David's father. He was named 700 years before he was even born. That there would come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots, speaking of Christ. And then in verse 10, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, who shall stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. Isn't that wonderful? And all of that was on the line as Saul sought to snuff out and silence David's life. Was he successful? No, he was not. God's not dead. He's surely alive. Amen? And God's word and plan cannot and will not be silenced. Do you believe that? I believe that because it's true. God's word cannot be thwarted. His plan cannot be thwarted. And how frustrating of a mess Satan is trying as much as he can to overthrow governments like he's doing right now and overthrow the things just frustrated, just angry, and he's taking down whoever he can because he knows his time is short, but his end is certain. And I'm looking forward to that day, are you? So don't let the world or the devil silence you, Christian, as you share the truth of the gospel with others. But let's be faithful to fulfill our great commission. Our great commission. What is it? It's in Matthew, right? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always. He is Emmanuel, is he not? He is with us. Even in the difficult times, even in the most excruciating times of our lives, when everything is going, everything's just a mess. Have you had days, weeks, months like that where everything is just Lord, if you do another thing, I'm just going to go to the Ford Street Bridge and jump. Had enough. It's too much. And God's like, hang in there. I'm doing something you don't understand. You don't understand it now, but you will. I'm going to make you. (laughs) I don't have it with me. It's over there. Rubber band. Remember that big rubber band that I had? He says, you used to be so rigid and so stiff, and now I'm going to stretch you. Yes, it's going to stretch you, but you're going to be more pliable. You're going to be more usable to me. And you're going to have a depth of understanding of my character and of my love for you. Yes, even in the midst of hardship, that no one will be able to shake you ever again. 
Nothing will be able to shake you. And you will stand. And I would encourage you not to be silent concerning the things that go on in our culture. Yes, it's okay to speak truth to power. John the Baptist did it. He spoke to Herod. Peter did it. Paul did it. And Jesus did it. But be respectful. Be loving, but be bold as lions. We can do that. Speak the truth in love. And there's the challenge. Because if you're like me, I can get so frustrated that I don't speak in love. I speak out of anger. And, and you've seen me up here, and, and forgive me, folks. I'm, I'm, I'm being changed before your eyes. Unfortunately, it's very public sometimes. God's changing me, and I've made many mistakes. And the Lord has brought me through some pretty deep waters, as he has you as well. And thank you for not running out the door and screaming. And Even though you probably deserved it, but it's not about me at all. Be respectful. But we're not only to share the truth of the gospel, but also to expose darkness. And we're going to... Um, the worship team can come on up uh, while they're on their way up here before we take communion. Just want to read a few things to you really quick. We are to share the truth. We are not to be silenced. Don't be silenced. And if you are silenced, then just take it. You don't have to fight back. You don't have to respond in violence. That's what the world does. That's all they can do. But our king is victorious already. And he's coming back. Do you know that? And when he comes, the kingdoms of this world and everything else that's wrong, he's going to make right. He is Mr. Right. He's going to right everything. And so smile, Christian. Because guess what? Things for us, it may not be easy, but it's going to be looking up. Our future is bright. You know why? Because Christ is at the end of it. He's going to be there with us. He's going to be there with us through, through these things, and he's ultimately going to be with us. But we are not only to share the truth of the gospel, but to expose the darkness around us. What does it tell us in Ephesians? Have no fellowship with the unfruitful... Excuse me, let me uh, switch... Uh, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Literally, the word is rebuke them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret, but all things are exposed and made manifest by the light, for whatsoever makes manifest is light. Whatever makes manifest, whatever exposes the truth and expose, or promotes the truth and exposes the darkness, that is light. And that's what God has called us to do. What did John tell us in his letter? By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess, notice this, this takes out a lot of the cults right here. Every spirit that does not confess that Jesus has come in the flesh is not of God. Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, many others. God loves them, but they have to come to him. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is already in the world. 
the spirit of the Antichrist, the spirit of Antichrist is very much in full swing right before us. It's all over our newspapers. It's all happening. Until the man of sin shows on the scene, but thank God, the Bible tells us that the church will be removed before the man of sin is revealed because we would spot him in an instant. Everything in our being as a believer would light up like a Christmas tree if we were here when that guy showed up on the scene. I'm convinced of it. So here's the exhortation. Two small things. In Corinthians, Paul exhorts them. In verse 17 of 2 Corinthians 6, Therefore come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. That's God's heart for you and I, to come out from among the world. Christ has purchased you and I, the church, by his own blood, and he wants us to be separated from the world and separated unto him. It has to be that way. I have to be separated from something to be separated to something. And he's called us out of the world. Be separate from the world. Don't try to be like the world. You're not like the world. Our methods are completely different. Our heart is different. Because we possess within ourselves by the presence of the Holy Spirit and what we hold in our hand, the greatest truth that cannot be canceled. It cannot be silenced. No matter what. They can kill John the Baptist. They can kill Jesus. They can kill many of the other church martyrs. They can kill anything they want. They can do whatever they want with this body. But guess what? The message goes on and it is always going on and it will never stop. And ultimately Christ wins. He's already told us the end. Can everybody smile at the same time? (laughs) And guess what? You win with him. Because you are in Christ, you win with him. Hallelujah! (laughs) I'm looking forward to it. And actually, right now, we are more than conquerors in Christ. And yet, I can walk around with a sullen face like somebody, you know, know, dropped mustard in my cornflakes or something. You know, it's like, Rob, remember who you are. Stop walking around like a, a child that's been defeated and, you know, running behind the bushes and scowling and crying. You're a king's kid, and he's coming back. He's got you. Do you know he's got you? Do you know he loves you? I can't think of a better thing. And one final verse, and then we'll take communion. And, and while we take communion, you guys can just come up. But just one, one more thing here, and it's in Matthew, and I just love this. Just want to exhort you with this. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. And we are. The world is full of darkness, and you know that right now. The world is completely consumed with darkness, but you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill, and and this whole complex is a, you can call it, I guess, a city, and we are indeed on a hill. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. It can't be silenced. It can't be canceled. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. And here's the exhortation, so let your light shine. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify who? Your Father in heaven. No pastor, no movement, no church. No, you glorify God. We will glorify God. 
Amen? Amen. As the worship team leads us in a song, please feel free to come up and grab the elements and bring them back to your chair, and we'll take it together, okay? Why should we gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. What a sweet lyric, isn't it? And you, many of you know this, in the Middle East, whenever they would eat, and, you know, we don't have, uh, you know, chabala or kabbalah, whatever they call it, chabala bread, you know, the stuff that we just tear off and pass it around. That would be fun to do during COVID. <laughs> just get a bunch of those, go to the bakery, go to the Italian bake, go to Leo's and get, say, can I have like 15 uh, chabala breads? We'll just tear them off and hand them out, and that's what they did. But eating together was a, a very intimate thing in that culture, and it is even today when you have friends over. But when we gather around this meal, even though it's small, we remember the death of Christ. We remember his body being broken for us on the cross, the, the whippings with the flagellum, the, the spear piercings, the nail piercings, the, the crown of thorn piercings. And then the most important thing of all was the fact that he took our sin on himself. And that's something that the movies can't portray. Something that Mel Gibson couldn't really portray. The beatings, that's easy. The brutality of Christ on the cross, easy to do theatrically. But we don't need theater. We have the Bible. More important than anything you can watch. But he did, his body was torn and broken for us, and then his blood was shed. Not just any blood, but a holy blood. The very blood of God was shed for you and I. That's why he's the spotless lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There's no need for anything else to happen, for us, to, for our sin to be atoned for, to be paid in full, to be paid in full. And it's up to you and I. And I trust that if you've taken those elements into your hands this morning, that you have already made that business that deal with God and said, Lord, I'm yours. And I trust and I believe everything that you have done. And Lord, this morning, right now, I want to rededicate my life to you. And I, and I pray that you do that with me. Because we all, you know, just walking in the world, we get defiled. The things that we see, the things that we hear, the things even our own heart sometimes goes to, and Lord, we just want to say, forgive us this morning. Lord, cleanse us in the blood of Christ. Wash away every sin that's represented here, my own included. Lord, and all of us, just wash it away. And you, you did that in one fell swoop. And Lord, symbolically, as we take this bread and this cup, we know that you did that on the cross. And so we give thanks to you, holy God. And we praise you for your goodness, Lord. And we take these tokens in thanksgiving knowing what you have done for us, Lord. And we take them to you with simplicity and with thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's partake of both. But let's stand together and let's pray. And thank you for your patience this morning. And I just pray that God truly loves on you today and that you would experience just the fullness of God's love and grace and his spirit just surrounding you and just leading you in, in all the ways that God would have you to go. He leads us into all righteousness and he, he shows us things to come. And, and I pray that your life, your family, everything that you do this week and this, this day, the, the next month, the next year, Lord, would you just bless these people? 
Bless each one of us, Lord. Pour out your spirit upon us and, and help us, Lord, in everything that we need help with. And the needs are many in this room. We need everything you've got, Lord. Would you please pour it upon us? And we just submit our hearts to you. We thank you for all that you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 God bless you. Have a great night.